Jesus Christ. Um, if you are uh, new with us, uh, you might not know that we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke for many, many months. And so we actually did the Christmas narratives back in July. So we kind of had a little Christmas in July mini-series. And so rather than walk through those same uh, Luke passages that are very familiar to us, that we tend to anchor our time together in the Advent season... Uh, we are going to spend uh, the next few weeks in our Advent season here at Risen uh, looking at the promises of Emmanuel God with us through Isaiah's prophetic words. Um, Isaiah is a prophetic book, and it gives us uh, it gives us the first window into these hopeful words about Emmanuel God with us that there will be born of a virgin, one to come. And there's all these promises of Messiah given to us in Isaiah's prophecies. They have some near fulfillments and some future fulfillments. And so we're going to be anchoring our time together in Isaiah uh, throughout the next few weeks. And we're going to be uh, this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, would you go to the Old Testament to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, where we find one of these very first Prophecies. Now, I will say at the front end, um, we're going to have to wade through some history, some historical context, some understanding of what's going on with Israel and Judah and some invading armies that want to take over the land and usurp kings and all these sorts of things. And so when we read and when we're presented with and we're looking at particularly even today in Isaiah chapter 7, what we're reading could be in many ways uh, torn right from the headlines today that many of us are watching and looking at. And so we're reminded as we go all the way back in Isaiah's prophecy that this conflict and these conflicts in this land and in these regions are not something new, but God does have a plan and he can be trusted and he can be hoped in. And so uh, that's where we're going to be headed the next few weeks. Glad you are with us. If you're new with us, welcome. Uh, thrilled that you've chosen to come worship with us here at Risen Church. Well, the question all around us, uh, really each and every day that we live and we navigate through our lives, is the question of trust. Um, it's who do you trust? What do you trust in? What do you put your trust in? What's worthy of your trust? When you take your car to the car dealership, for example, right? You go get the oil change that uh, we just kind of do in the routine maintenance, and we go in, and then the, the person tells us, oh, we've actually found 17 things that need addressing right now, and uh, the sum total, if you choose to do all 17 things, um, not including just the oil change you came in for, is going to be $984. Now, that's just tier one. We found tier two and three that's going to be about uh, $19,000 if you really want to do all of those, right? And so in those moments, do you really trust that uh, mechanic? Do you trust that shop? And how do we deal with that? What do we think about that? Do we want to give up our uh, $700 that we weren't planning on giving up for the flux capacitor that has seemingly gone out that we didn't know about? What news source do you trust? We live in an age right now where everyone sort of has their, uh, their opinions, their thoughts about CNN, Fox News, BBC, NPR, maybe you're sitting there, you can't trust any of them, right? They're all liars. What news source do you trust? Where do we get our news? Where do we get our information? Marriages are built on trust. 
Relationships are built on trust. And when that trust begins to get frayed and begins to uh, wear thin through different circumstances, our relationships and even our marriages can be in grave trouble. Which Amazon reviews do you trust? Where if you did the whole Black Friday thing, or if you're waiting for Cyber Monday, now that's not even a thing anymore, that all bleeds together. Are you the one that reads the, the 6,000 five-star reviews and you're like, yep, okay, this is good? Or do you try to filter through and find the four one-star reviews of the person that's saying, don't waste your time, this is garbage? All those other reviews are fake, right? Who do you trust? Where do you, how do you know when your kids are fighting? One of them's crying, the other one is justified in what they've done, and you go and ask them the inevitable, what just happened? And they were, if you're like our family and no one was in school, this seemed to be quite an uptick last week, right? Some sibling infighting, and they tell you two stories. Who do you trust? If you're wise, maybe neither of them, right? The truth is somewhere in the middle, or you, the truth is what you tell them is, Right? I'll tell you what, who did this and who's at fault, right? But who do you trust? What story do you trust? Who's that one friend in your life that you have that you can trust, that will hold your, your information with confidence that you, that you share? Uh, that is a great friend if you have that person. Who do you trust? We, we even have arguments about who we trust in our weather forecasts, Right? We have our certain ones that we go to, and other ones like this person's always wrong. Go to Space City Weather, they're always right, right? Kind of all, we have different, even weather factions that we place our trust in. There's thousands of small and big ways that we are confronted with this reality of who, what, where do we place our trust? We encounter them every day. We encounter them each and every day, but the ultimate question, the ultimate one that runs through every detail and every thread of our lives and every choice in our lives and every decision we make in our lives is this, is do we trust God? Do we trust God? Do we trust Him at His Word? Will we put the, our full weight, we move all of our chips in on God? <coughs> Do we look at what he says and his word and his assessment of reality and do we trust it as the truer, more reliable reality than even our narratives that we come up with in our own minds? And really that question is at the heart of our text today in Isaiah 7. Um, and it's not, just the, it's not just the Sunday school answer, yes, I trust God, but when, when the rubber meets the road, when push comes to shove, when it actually matters, when the fork in the road comes and you have a decision to make, do you trust God in that moment? Or will you trust in someone else or in something else? Um, and that's the question that will determine whether our lives, church, is built solidly on a foundation of stone or on shifting sands. And so with that in mind, with that sort of picture in mind of who and what do you trust in, let's look at Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read it. There's going to be a lot of hard words. 
There's going to be a lot. It's going to seem a little bit strange. And then we're going to have that familiar Christmas prophecy that's embedded right in the middle of this. Many of you have never heard this in the context of Isaiah 7. And so we're going to do some unpacking a little bit this morning about what, what's happening here in the context and what we have to look forward to in the hope of this promise that we're given in God's Word. Isaiah 7, we're going to look at 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is Israel, so they use some confusing language even there. So just a clarifying word there. The heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz and shear Jashab, your son, At the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. <coughs> Excuse me, thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, The head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. There's a lot in there. You're like, oh my goodness, this is Christmas? Yes. Okay, get ready. This is awesome. So chapter 7, let me, get, let me give a little historical context. Let's kind of wrap our heads around what's happening. It's, it's in this prophetic literature, so it's hard for us to really kind of understand. We don't read these often, but 
but I'm going to do my best to sort of put some bookends here so we understand historically what's happening here. Chapter 7 opens by setting the historical stage. Ahaz is on the throne of Judah. Now remember all the way back, you remember the Exodus, remember um, God delivering his people out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And after they're in the promised land, God establishes this monarchy, if you will. He establishes kings to put over their people because their people are asking for a king. So they, they, they leave Egypt as God's people. They go through the wilderness wanderings, and God is now establishing for himself a kingdom. Now, this kingdom, this monarchy that's established amongst God's people in this promised land only lasts for three kings, if you remember. We have King Saul. Then we have King David, and then we have Solomon. And after that, the kingdoms are split. They're split in two, and they're split in the northern kingdom and then in the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the royal line of David reigned in Judah. And Ahaz, who we just read about in Isaiah 7, Ahaz, who came up a lot, is in the royal line of David, in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's in control here. He's, one, he, he, he's the one in this line. But by the time Ahaz comes along, things are not looking good for Judah. There's all these geopolitical threats. There's all of these things that are bearing down on, uh, on Judah and the people. People want this land. They want to take it over. They want it for themselves. This promised land that was given to these exiled people, they see some weakness that are happening in these people. And so a lot of these, these larger nations see this as an opportunity. So one of these larger uh, empires is the Assyrian Empire, which was pursuing this expansionist uh, foreign policy, if you will. So it began encroaching on Palestine. It wanted to swallow up as much land through force as it could. And as a result, Israel in the northern kingdom um, begins to align itself with its northern neighbor, Syria. All right, are we tracking? Is everyone okay so far? I know it's a lot. It's a lot of geography. Some of you are like, no, buckle up. We'll get some, some application later. This, but this is worth it. So the northern kingdom begins to align itself with Syria in this defensive alliance against the Assyrian Empire to stop them from invading and taking over their land. So they took an enemy, if you will, alliance to stop a greater enemy from advancing and taking over the northern kingdom. Um, and apparently Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria wants Judah, the southern kingdom, with Ahaz in the line of David, to join forces with them and form an anti-Syrian uh, coalition of all of these states, right? I mean, this could be ripped right out of the headlines today, so to speak. I, I mean, this is crazy. And so, by the way, so when, when, when we think about this, Israel and Syria, their alliance to stop the Assyrians, they weren't going to do this through diplomacy. They weren't asking Judah nicely. Uh, if you go back and read through Isaiah 7, they were going to um, 
see this come to fruition by actually attacking Judah, seizing control of Judah in the southern kingdom, and installing a puppet king in place of Ahaz. They're like, we'll put our own king in place. And they'll listen to us, and then we can form this big alliance so that we can keep this land ours. And so they wanted to set up this puppet king. They wanted to conquer Judah for themselves with this alliance of the northern kingdom and Syria. And they wanted to set the son of Tebael as king in the midst of it, as we read in Isaiah chapter 7. So, all that, are we okay there? A couple yawns. Okay, I'm okay with a few. So for Judah and Ahaz, there is a gathering storm on the horizon. It's bad news. There's all these different geopolitical threats at play. And it feels like uh, there's a further storm of the Assyrian threat that's like kind of out there. But there's even one closer to home that is Israel and Syria wanting to attack them, uh, throw out Ahaz and put a puppet king on the throne so they can form their own alliance. So they're in, ja- they're in danger. Judah is in danger. The Davidic line is in danger. And so this is the situation at play when Isaiah comes on the scene, the prophet of God, and announces God's promise to Ahaz, okay? And he announces this promise telling him not to fear Israel and Syria. Isaiah reminds Ahaz of the promises of God. Do not fear this invading army. Why? Place your trust in the Lord because the Lord will deliver you. He tells them. The Lord will deliver you. The Lord is going to bring the plans of their enemies to naught. He is going to stop their plans. It will not be so, it said. And so we're going to look today in Isaiah 7 at the promises of God. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the certainty of God's promises. Because that's going to run through all of chapter 7 and all of really Isaiah's prophecy that will carry us into our Christmas hope today. God's promises do not fail. We're going to look at uh, the summons of God's promise and then lastly the sign of God's promise. So the certainty of God's promise. So the crisis of this chapter is apparently the conflict of these dire circumstances threatening Ahaz and Judah and the promises of God. And all of these different situations and all of these geopolitical forces at play seem to be mutually exclusive to each other. It's like, how can we trust in the promises of God when all of these realities are bearing down on us? So God's people are frightened. Ahaz doesn't know what to do. Syria is bearing down. We have the Assyrians who were coming after that. And so there's this siege of warfare that seems inevitable. And the question running through all of this is, will God's promises come through? Or are they just empty words? Are the promises of God just empty words with an expiration date when a more powerful army comes sweeping through? That's what the people of God are grappling with. Or to put it differently, when everything is crashing down on them, when everything is, we'll put it personally, is crashing down on us, church, 
Will God actually save us? Will God actually come through for us? Will he actually rescue us? Or do we need to figure and devise a way to save ourselves? Do we need to find another savior? And the answer that Isaiah 7 gives us is that God will save his people and that his promises are sure and that we can stand firm in them even when seemingly the lights go out. All right, so if you look at verses 6 through 9, there's this implicit contrast there. On one hand, in verse 6, you have these two kings, Pekah and Rezin, and the text describes them as smoldering stumps of fire bands, okay? This is not good language to be described. Um, smoldering stumps of fire bands, they're called. In other words, these two guys, these two kings are essentially the sticks and ash that is left over after a bonfire has burnt out. And these two kings are arrogantly announcing their plans of what they are going to do and how they're going to see it come to fruition. And then on the other hand, in verses 7 through 9, you have the cosmic king. You have the Lord and King of heaven and earth, the Lord God himself, not a smoldering stump, but he, in this situation, is the consuming fire. He's the consuming fire. And he announces his plans to bring their plans to naught, to stop their plans. And it says, it shall not stand, he says. It shall not come to pass. It reminds me of that Gandalf moment, Lord of the Rings, right? He's on the bridge, the massive monster. Sorry, I won't go any further. If you're a nerd in here, you know what I'm talking about. And then verse 18 says this. We didn't read verse 18, but it's going to give us another little window into how the Lord feels about these other kings. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Syria. And so essentially what the text is telling us is that Assyria and the rising superpower of the day in Egypt and the fearsome enemies that are bearing down on God's people, these mighty nations, they are all at God's beck and call. God whistles, like, whistles at them like a dog and they come running whenever he whistles. God is king of heaven and earth, we're reminded in Isaiah 7, who sits enthroned above it all. He is sovereign. He is ruling. His ways are higher than our ways. His plans will come to fruition even when we cannot see it. And he will bring princes to nothing and he will command very kings. In verse 20, It goes on to describe this, and it says that the king of Assyria is a razor in the hand of God, meaning the most powerful emperor in the nation in the Near East. (coughs) He's just a tool. He's an instrument in the hands of God. He's a picture of all earthly kings, and all earthly kingdoms pose no threat to God because he rules over them all. He commands them and they obey his will. He causes kingdoms to rise, and he causes kingdoms to fall. 
and he can bring them to nothing by the power of his word. Now, last summer, my family and I, we traveled all the way, road tripped all the way up to Montana. Uh, we love to escape the heat where we, when we can, and so we love the mountains, and we were staying in and around near the Yellowstone River, the mighty Yellowstone. And uh, one, of my fav- one of my kids' favorite things to do while we were there was we, we, there's, this, there's this place called Carter's Bridge. It's a good fishing spot, and you can bring lawn chairs. And my kids love to take the, what seems like just millions of smooth river rocks. And you can't get too far out into the Yellowstone because it'll just sweep you away because it's moving. All the snow melt has come off in the summer. And so the river is, it is the mighty Yellowstone. But we like to kind of sit on the banks and we pop up our chairs. And my kids like to start building like these little rock dams to sort of stop the water flow. And they're pretty successful. They can get a few things going. And then little pools of the tiny trout that are spawning, they can collect them there and they try to catch them, right? And they're just having a good time trying to build these dams. But inevitably, every time we return to that spot, are those little dams still there? Does the mighty Yellowstone care about children's little rock formations to stop the flow of going where it chooses? No. It just obliterates them. The tide changes, the river water changes, all the things happen, and it just, the water goes where it wants to go, and it destroys these little rock formations, it destroys these little things that they want. They're kind of there, but they're just in rubble, and so the kids spend the next two hours rebuilding what they built the day before because it's fun, and the next day, the river will destroy them again, and today, there's even no semblance of them there because we were there all the way back in July. And that's what human kings and rulers are before God's mighty wave and water and movement. Kings and kingdoms can no more frustrate the promises of God than a little wall of rocks built by children. And Isaiah is trying to remind God's leaders and God's people of this reality. The mighty waters of the Yellowstone will move where they please. And in the same way, Isaiah is trying to get to the leaders and God's people to remember and cling to the fact that God's promises will prevail. Um, And it's not just that God is powerful, it's that his promises are reliable. That his promises are reliable. So one more thing. Did you notice here? It's twice in chapter 7 in the text that we read. Once in verse 2 and once in verse 13. If you go back, we get to underline. But it speaks to the house of David. Isaiah reminds us that all of these players here are from the house and lineage of David. It's a phrase that echoes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. When God makes a covenant with David. You remember it? David had built his own house. He built his place, his palace, and he decides it's time for me to build a house for the Lord. I'm going to build a temple for the Lord. And God says to him, you want to build me a house? He says, no, I'm going to build you a house. In other words, I'm going to build you an empire. I'm going to make a covenant with you, David. And God promises to build David his house of his line with God's promise. And here's what he says in 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house 
and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And David responds by praying and he says, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken in your name. And your name will be magnified forever. Saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. (coughs) Excuse me. See what's going on here? God's name will be magnified and he will keep his covenant promises to establish the house and line of David forever. It's the very glory of God at stake with these promises. And that is what is being threatened in Isaiah 7. I told you we had to do some work here. We're almost to application. Because remember, Ahaz was in the line of these Davidic kings. But Isaiah reminds us that God's promises won't fail. Because God's very name and God's very glory and God's very reputation are coupled with these promises. His very character and covenant faithfulness are at stake. Now, I know that our circumstances are different, oftentimes. But the question is often the same as we face all the different varied circumstances in our lives. Is God really going to come through on his promise for us? Is God really going to save? Or do we need to figure out a way to save ourselves? Do we need to circumvent something? Do we need to figure it out on our own? Are God's promises enough for me? Can I bank my hope and my life and my future on Him? And so there's moments in our lives where the biopsy comes back and it's not what we'd hoped. The doctor has bad news. Can we still cling to his good promises, even when it seems the lights are dim? Um, Can we say, like we've said through the ages with the many saints, that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, life and death to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we look for something more when the company is downsized, when the job seems to not be secure? Is God going to save? Is he going to come through to me? Or do I need to save myself? Is it enough that God feeds the birds of the air, that he clothes the lilies of the field? How much more does he care for us, church? We always sometimes are looking for more. When we're faced with heartbreak or disappointment in life that comes, when we have years of seasons that we thought we wouldn't have to walk through, when depression darkens, when dreams are shattered or scattered, when marriage is tough or maybe even right on the fringe of failure, when addiction creeps back in when you thought you'd beaten it for the hundredth time, is God really going to save? Is he really going to come through? Or do we look to save ourselves? Is his promises, are his promises ultimate and more real and more trustworthy than all the other things we might try and reach for? 
Isaiah's coming on the scene and saying that the God who rules everything, before whom kings and nations and worldly superpowers are nothing and even less than nothing, he makes covenant promises to us that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ and to those who trust in this Son, this one, this promised son, those covenant promises will come through. They will save and they will not fail. That we can bank everything on those promises. That every external circumstance that we look at with our human eyes that seem to threaten that, that seem to bear down on God's covenant promise, we can cling to his promises that are true. And his promises can flood our lives and give us, as Zach talked about, tremendous hope in what seems like a darkened world. That's the certainty of God's promise in Isaiah 7. I'm going to go much quicker on the last two. The second that we're going to look at, um, verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. It's a play on words in the Hebrew. Commentators try to sort it out. One commentator sorts it this way. It's to paraphrase, uh, to trust or bust, right? So it's kind of a rhymey thing. Either you stand firm in the faith or you won't stand firm at all. Either you're founded on faith in God's promise or you've got no foundation at all. That's sort of the, the, what's being communicated here in verse 9. <coughs> that apart from God's promises, there is no firm foundation. So the question on the surface of Isaiah was how Ahaz was going to deal with this threat that was bearing down on him with Israel and Syria. But the question below the surface at the heart of Isaiah 7 is, will we trust God and his saving promises or will we trust ourselves and our own strategies to get out of things when they barrel down on us? Will we trust in our own self-salvation? Will we try to be our own savior? Um, God wants us to fully put all of our hope and trust in him and not look back that he is the lasting security, that his promises are true. Um, and so when we get anxious, we can trust him. When we want to control things and we feel like things are out of control, remember the promises of God are true. We can trust Him. We can bank all of our hope in Him. We don't have to try to rework things and re-tinker uh, with things to try to make them work out for our own ways. But we can remember that our Savior says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's calling us to trust in him. Friends, there's only one person in the entire universe who is actually in control, and you and I are not that person. To the degree that you are trusting in your own control of whatever situation you find yourselves in, you're not trusting in God. Lastly, um, the sign of God's promise, where we get our Emmanuel, God with us, our Christmas passage, all that to say to get us right here. Um, and maybe you've been here and you've been wondering, well, how do I know? How do I know that his promises are true? You just read a really old passage from a long, long time ago. Is it really true today? 
Well, let's look at verse 10 and 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God and let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So this is interesting what's happening here in this text. In response to Ahaz's weakness of belief. Okay, he's, he's trying to figure out a way out of this. God doesn't say, hey, <laughs> just grow up and believe. Like, suck it up here, Ahaz, and believe in me. He doesn't come at him that way. In compassion and even kindness, he recognizes Ahaz's weakness and unbelief here, and he offers him help. Isn't that amazing? God says, ask anything. But Ahaz refuses. His answer sounds pious, but it's not. We don't have time to unpack that. And then Isaiah says to him in verse, th- verse 13, he says, Hear then, O house of David, reminding him of the promise. It is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. So despite Ahaz's unbelief, God still comes through and gives him a sign. Verse 14. All of this backstory, and here we get our glorious passage. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So this sign has an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah, if you're a student of the Bible, and it has an ultimate fulfillment Its immediate fulfillment points to God's presence with his people to preserve them, to keep his commitment and his covenant promise with them. It's also fulfilled in the near sense to another child that would be born in Isaiah chapter 8. If you go and read the next chapter, there's actually a child that's born. And then it also has its ultimate fulfillment, which is why we read it during this Advent season. It reminds us of the hope we have in Christ because it's ultimate fulfillment that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 that we're going to get to and unpack more fully in the coming weeks is the promise of the child that will be born unto you. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Emmanuel points ultimately forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.18 anchors this promise all the way back here in Isaiah 7 to Christ concerning this supernatural one, the child of the supernatural in the line of David. God himself becomes man. God enters into history to make good on his promise to deliver his people from bondage, oppression, exile, sin, and even our greatest enemy, death itself. That's the one that's coming. That's the one that was promised. And that's the one that came in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God did in Christ. The true Emmanuel who became like us yet without sin so that he could save us to the uttermost. So that he would leave nothing to chance, church. He did not remain far off, our God. He left heaven and he came all the way down to earth to be with us so that he could carry us back to heaven one day to the perfect place that he has prepared for us, a true and lasting city forever with our God. 
He was not metaphorically with us, cheering us on from the distance, saying, way to go, you can do this. No. He was God with us. For those that would trust him by faith, he is there so deeply that he even went to the very cross and paid our penalty that we deserved our sins, that deserved our death, but instead grants to us his everlasting life. He died and rose again, and then he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God with us so much that he is now with us, and he's with us now through something that he sent to us, the Holy Spirit itself. So do you want to know how you can know that God will make good on his promises that showed up all the way back with guys with the name of Ahaz and all these other crazy things that we think are so far off, those promises made all those years ago are ours now in Christ. He makes good on his promise, church. That's Christmas. He has given us a sign. Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus did not come to suffer and die for you and I, that God's promises might get fulfilled. He came to guarantee it. And that to everyone who trusts in him through faith, every last promise will be fulfilled. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? All of them all the way back even to Isaiah chapter 7 that points all the way back even further to the Davidic covenant. It all finds their yes in this one that we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. God put on flesh to come and be with us. So church, the start of this Advent season, with all the hustle and bustle, with all the flash sales, with all the things that we have going on, with all the Christmas party, all the lights, all the glitz, Please don't lose sight of what we are doing when we celebrate him. Put all your chips in on him. You can trust him fully. Even when things aren't looking good, he is the guarantee. A God that loves so much that he will always make good on his promise to be with us forever. And he guarantees it so much that he didn't leave it to chance that he came to earth wrapped in flesh and paid the penalty that we deserved, rose again, guaranteeing, sealing us, saving us, calling us now sons and daughters so that we might trust him now and forevermore. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good and glorious word. We thank you that these promises that seem so far away Maybe these promises that we've heard our whole lives, we didn't know where they were anchored. Thank you that in Christ, they find their yes for even us who are found to trust you by faith. God, I pray for anyone in here that hasn't trusted you. Lord, would you call them to yourself? Would you save and rescue as only you can do? Lord, would you cast their sin as far as the east is from the west and would you guarantee their future and your good kingdom because of your only begotten son that came to be Emmanuel God with us and he will never leave us 
and never forsake us? Would we cling to him today? Would some today for the very first time, whether that be in the children's ministry in the back or at one of the wonderful many churches in our community, would the gospel go forth and would you save many this season? Would you do it even here today? God, I pray that we would trust you. Lord, in the places we're tempted to not, to make a way for ourselves, to circumvent your promise, to make alliances with the world, would we stand firm on who we are, our identity as sons and daughters of the King through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may it fill our hearts with hope and wonder and delight. And Lord, would it spill over out of our mouths and out of our lips to praise you because you are worthy of it all. So God, for these next few moments that we have together, may we fill this place with worship in awe of all that you have done and all that you will do, that you are with us through it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Church, will you stand with me? Worship.